and welcome to Backstage Pass, a spin-off of the Rock and Roll Survivors podcast, dedicated to those in front of the curtain, behind the curtain, and somewhere in between. I'm Kristen, and I'll be talking with music writers, podcasters, photographers, promoters, groupies, and so many others who love rock and roll. So here's your Backstage Pass. Let's get started. Welcome back, Madeline Baccaro, extraordinary author of the Yoko Ono quintessential reference book, History Extraordinaire. I just love it so much. It's called In Your Mind, The Infinite Universe of Yoko Ono. And we have started to dive into this amazing book. I'm calling it an homage to Yoko Ono, a personal love letter. But the one thing I want to say is it's not totally unobjective. And I think that that's what speaks so much to your work here, because you lived through it for the 30 years that you've admired her. You've also been friends with her. So we talked last time briefly about her childhood, and you are the expert on this. But before we begin, there's a couple of comments I wanted to make from our last conversation, because it says so much about your work with her. One of the things that you said is that part of the reason why you wanted to write this book and get it out there to the world is because you missed seeing her in the public arena. And I didn't think about that until after you said it. And you're right. This is the perfect continuum, this book, just to keep her going. And I think it's also such a refreshing take that on in a way that I don't think she's ever been seen before. And then the other thing that you said in our conversation, and this goes back to you being a 10-year-old, seeing Yoko Ono in a magazine clipping at your aunt's, is that you wrote to her as a child. And you, sure, you said you loved her artwork and that you got it, but I think it speaks volumes to her retaining her sense of innocence and trust, even against all odds, if you will, that she replied to this child. And I'm wondering how you feel about that now as the the grown-up Madeline looking back. I just think that um, there was an interview that John and Yoko did together with with, uh, David Frost in England. And they were playing their wild album. Uh, It was the Unfinished Music Life with the Lions, where it's really just a lot of experimentation. And um, John actually said, you know, children would understand it. Because that's where they were coming from. You know, children don't think that they have to be proper all the time and things have to fit in a certain format. They're just wild and free. And that's basically what everything she was doing represented. Just do it, you know, just explore, explain, don't explain, just explore your feelings and let them come out and let others interpret them. Did you worry as a child when you wrote to her? I mean, speaking of this, you know, jumping out of a box and taking chances, if you will, that you would hear back from her or wouldn't hear back from her or just you just took that chance? Well, I got into her when I was 10. That's when I had a first sighting of her in a magazine. But I didn't write to her until I was about 15 uh, when I had an address when she was living in the Dakota. So um, I was just writing that I loved her work. I wasn't really expecting an answer. Um, you know, and she wrote back probably because she understood like, wow, this kid appreciates my stuff. So I just wrote to everyone. She really did reply to every fan letter she got almost as much as she could. 
because she was into that. You know, she was very communicative. And especially after John was killed, she didn't realize there was there was tons of mail for her in the in the first week after. And she thought it was all for him. And she thought, oh, what a shame. You know, this is all here and John can't see it or answer it. It's probably, you know, praising the new album and all. And little by little, she started reeling as a lot of the letters were for her. And she answered them. That's just beautiful. Well, I want to get to Yoko Ono's spirit. And I think this all begins in her childhood. And you have written beautifully and extensively about her childhood, where she came from, the cultures she grew up in. I say that plural. And how this all had an impact on her. And I don't think anybody could speak to this except for Yoko Ono better than you. So, so set the stage. She's born in Japan, February 18th, 1933. Yoko means ocean child. So tell us about young Yoko. Well, young Yoko was born into one of the wealthiest families in Japan. Her mother was a socialite. Her father was a banker. He was in America when she was born. She didn't get to meet him until she was about two and a half years old. Um, and she was raised by servants. The family had multiple, more than, I would say, between 20 and 30 servants. And um, she had no friends. And when she wanted to to play a game, they summoned over the servant's daughter. And the servant's daughter had to call her miss because she was a higher rank. And it was just so bizarre to her. She didn't, she wanted um, to hug somebody. She wanted companionship. And she had these women in kimono serving her lunch at this big, long table, um, watching her eat, watching her fall, because they were told not to pick her up when she fell so that she wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't muddle her brain. Very strange stuff. So she grew up very, very lonely. And well, uh, let me interrupt for one second. Was she an only child? No, she she was the older. She had two siblings later, two younger siblings. Um, yeah, but and, later, as you you're an only child and I'm an only child. If you have a little bit of time, you're you still have you're an only mindset. child, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, go so ahead. She was very lonely, and uh, by the time she was twelve, uh, came the American bombings of Tokyo, and she was evacuated to the countryside with her two siblings at this time. She was 12. They were a little younger. And um, they were sent to an abandoned farmhouse um, that their mother had kind of paid to have them stay there, thinking it was in better shape than it was, but it was a mess. And they uh, stayed in this place with a hole in the roof and they were bartering. She had sent them with like silk kimono and rice and things, well, not rice, silk kimono and jewels to trade for rice. And the children in the town and the people in the town thought, oh, here come these rich people. And, and they were throwing stones at them and they wouldn't give them food. And it was just a horrible situation. So they were starving and she was picking mulberries off trees to, to feed her siblings. Um, she saw a family go into the woods and pick mushrooms to eat that were poisonous and they died in the woods and she came through a lot of horror and then going back to uh, Tokyo she was picked up on a, a, a rickety old truck and they were bumping along these broken up road and she's seeing her whole city in ruins and she just realized you know the transience of everything that everything was gone so that's part of her artwork being 
so intangible that you can't hold on to anything anyway. So here, here's an apple, watch it deteriorate. Here's a an instruction, it's in your mind, it'll always be there or, or you can forget about it either way. It's just, you know, an idea. She didn't want to have a sculpture on a stand or a painting on a wall to admire. That wasn't what she thought art was. It's interesting, and this is so not original of me, but it is very original of Yoko Ono, but I just, and I'm pulling it off now, just wrote a post-it that said everything is ephemera because I'm starting to realize, use it, wear it, put it up, let it get sun faded. Yeah. What am I saving it for? It's here to enjoy and everything is so transient. And she got that at such a young age. And the thing that fascinates me, and I really do want to tease this out a little bit more about her experiences, you have a chapter in there called The Loneliness, or called Loneliness, about her loneliness. And I, I children could have gone many different ways with these experiences, especially from this great wealth to this great fall. So talk a little bit more about her spirit during all of this and that she recognized her loneliness. Um, she recognized that um, she had kind of a lot of insight that other people didn't have. She thought she was kind of special because she had these thoughts like uh, planting two different kinds of seeds to make a different kind of tree with different fruits hanging from it. Or she um, she thought she knew she was going to write a story eventually about this horrible experience. So she viewed it subjectively as if it was happening to someone else like a movie. And she said she was always in kind of a dream world anyway. And I guess, you know, when you hear about sexual victims, they kind of go out of their body while it's happening and, you know, whatever they do to cope. And, you know, later on, maybe they, you know, it comes back to them and they're traumatized. But while it's happening, in, in fact, she said she was actually kissed by a doctor, um, one of her examinations. And when she told her mother about it later on, her mother said it was probably your fault. So she couldn't get a break. You know, nobody wow. understood, believed her. It must have been a very, very lonely existence. What was her relationship like with her mother? Uh, her mother was very, very beautiful. And she was a socialite and she would just see this and that all her mother cared about was, oh, look at this dress, look at this jewelry. And Yoko was never, even as a child, was never valuing that. And um, she felt a distance from her mother. Um, and she said that secretly she used to wish that her mother had died because she couldn't stand having such a beautiful mother because it meant that she was the hunchback of Notre Dame. So... That, that breaks my heart. And I, I have a beautiful mother as well. And I understand it. And I know a lot of children who go through that. And it's too bad her mom couldn't show Yoko how beautiful she was. Mm -hmm. Two of the pictures that I'll be sharing as we air these episodes is uh, Yoko as a little girl. And I was struck by the smaller Yoko in front of the, what is it, the SS? I can't think oh, of it. Oh, it's a, yes, life preserver from the... Trip they went on to one of the trips to America, and that actual ship ended up being torpedoed after the after the war when it was a hospital vessel. Like everything in her life is just a, a major historical event. That's that's incredible. That's incredible. But well, in the other picture you sent me, it looks like she's about a year older, year and a half older. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit longer. You can see at that point in her eyes. 
the eyes have shifted. There mm -hmm. is such a soulfulness and sadness in that second picture. And it just absolutely breaks my heart. So keep talking about her childhood and she's now a teenager and the war is over. So tell us okay. what happens next. So she gets re-enrolled in the, the Gakashuan school, which was for imperial family and wealthy people. So, you know, she was with the emperor's two sons there and one of them had a crush on her, of course. And uh, she was, after that, she becomes the only philosophy student in school, a female philosophy student. Then her parents take her when she was 19 to America and they settle in Scarsdale. So she's near Sarah Lawrence College and she starts attending classes there. And even there, the, the, the teachers are saying to her, you know, you're too far out. This is this is strange. And one of her professors was Andre Singer, and he um, was familiar with John Cage and the avant-garde composers, 12-tone composers she was into, Schoenberg and all that. So she, he said, look, you should go to New York City because that's where all these people are, are. So she did, and she ended up meeting John Cage and her her first husband-to-be was a collaborator of John Cage, Toshi Ichinagi, and they oh. went touring all over Japan. Performing. I want to hear all of this. I just want to set the stage for people that don't know it as well as you do. What years are we talking about here? When, when We're did talking about um, 1952, 53. And that is avant-garde, as she's at Sarah Lawrence. No wonder they're saying you're a little out there. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, in the 50s, she's growing up without a turntable, without a, a, a stack of pop singles, without knowledge of any. And the Beatles didn't even exist yet. Right. So her teen years are just, you know, like she's exploring the avant-garde. She's not listening to anything on the radio. So she goes to New York and she she starts her own. She sees that there's not a lot of places for these people to perform. There's only like Carnegie Recital Hall and some clubs in the village. But she felt that these people needed a place. So she found a loft in the village and uh, rented that. And she opened it up to performances. And all of these people congregated there. And it was incredible. And now is this, was she able to do this because she had family money? No, no, no. It was a cold water flat. She had no electricity. They had orange crates to sit on. She abandoned the family money. She just left. And they didn't approve of her first husband, who was Japanese, because, you know, she was supposed to be betrothed, betrothed to some other wealthy Japanese family. They were suitors who were in line for her, but she wanted no part of it. She came to you know, New York, and she never went back. And her parents didn't come to her first wedding. They didn't come to any of her weddings. So it's interesting that, and this is a complete aside, but it's interesting that she grew up with all of this wealth and rejects it because that's not necessarily who she becomes, whether that's become because of her childhood experience in the war or whatever it is, she rejects it. And then she ends up marrying at some point John Lennon, who's a complete. You know, she's accused of, you know, stalking him for his money, which is nuts. Uh, that rumor I have not heard. Is that true? I, of course, it's oh, true. Oh, yeah. Gold digger. She would have been nothing without him and all those things. But she was on a path and she was becoming actually she was becoming a little too well known for the avant garde. They were starting to resent her because they were happy to be a little click and 
you know, that whole Fluxus movement that she was peripherally in, um, you know, what happened was one of her films, Bottoms, was getting a lot of interest. And they were saying, oh, she's sold out. And, you know, so she wasn't fitting in there either, but she was making a name. People knew who she was in Tokyo and New York. And then she goes to London where she would have become much more well-known had she not met John. But she meets him and then that whole trajectory goes on another route. Well, I find that fascinating. I've studied art history a lot. That was almost my major. And there's always that moment within an art movement, whether it's fluxus or feminism or whatever it is, where if one of them gets a little too ahead of the game, then suddenly it's, oh, we're not so. <laughs> she was ahead of the feminist movement, too, because all the feminists at the time were very militant. And she was more accepting and sympathetic towards men. And she wrote a song, I Want My Man to Rest Tonight. And it's this beautiful ballad of, I understand your fear and loneliness and all this. And the, and the feminists are, what are you doing? <laughs> You're softening, you know? And she's saying, no, 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 it's not about being more powerful than men. It's about being equal, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I want to talk about two of Yoko Ono's pieces, Cut and yes, and I want to pick that up on the next episode because I want to give that some time. But I just want to say something about what you were saying about the militant feminists rejecting Yoko Ono as well. There was another feminist artist named Hannah Wilkie, who was physically gorgeous. And she was actually with Claus Oldenburg for a while in the early days. And she took naked photos of herself and she was beautiful. And she would take naked pictures having after sex with Claus. And the militant feminists went after her as well. Oh, isn't that easy for you to take naked photos of yourself as yeah. you're gorgeous? And later in life, she got cancer, ended up passing away from it. But during the time where she went through chemo and she was bloated with tubes all over her, she recreated all of the photos that she had taken of herself younger looking like this. And I thought, ha, no, that's feminist art. Mm -hmm. And I see that a lot with Yoko, although I think both of them didn't need that label. They were so ahead of their time. So I, I actually Yoko's grandmother was a, a pioneering feminist. Now we're talking grandma, she in the forties, you know, thirties, forties. Um, she had a group called the blue, the blue steps, which was named after a group in England called the blue stockings and her, she had two very, uh, famous aunts, a musician and a painter who were very well known in Russia. They married into her family. And in Japan, they one of them opens up one of the first uh, violin teaching schools in Japan because until she came along, children weren't taught instruments. They were taught notation and all that, but they weren't taught to play as intensively as she so yeah. this was family musical influences on oh, her. Yeah, so mother played instruments, not professionally, but she played. Her father was going to be a pianist. And this is why he wanted her to, to be a pianist. And she uh, took the classical piano lessons and she understood it all very well, but she wanted to be a composer. And at the time he said, there are no female composers. What are you thinking? Wow, she really was always ahead of her time. I can't wait to talk about this more. So I will see you on episode three. But for those listening, Madeline Baccaro, tell us where anybody who wants to purchase your book or read your writing can find you. 
Okay, so the book is on Amazon for people uh, internationally because that's the best shipping uh, cost. But if you want the hardcover and if you want it signed by me, it's at conceptualbooks.com, only there. Um, there's a website for the book where you can read all the reviews and watch other podcasts that I've done. And that's inyourmindbook.com. And I have a music blog. It's Madeline X, M-A-D-E-L-I-N-E, X is in x-ray.com. Well, I just love your work and I can't wait to talk about more Yoko Ono on the next episode. So until then. Yeah.